0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Long before people started swooning over Congresswoman Val Demings of Florida as a possible vice president for Joe Biden, folks were talking about Senator Kamala Harris of California. Back in January 2019, a few weeks before Harris announced her own since disbanded presidential campaign, I sat with her in front of a live audience at George Washington University for the kickoff tour for her book, The Truths We Hold. Because Harris's book is a memoir, our conversation was heavy on stories about her parents, her upbringing, and her career. There's no better way to get to know this possible vice president than listening right now. Senator Harris, thank you very much for for being here, for choosing Washington to be the kickoff of your book tour. Thank you. Or, actually, to be correct, books tour. Yes. <laughs> as we see, um, The Truths We Hold in American Journey, and then also superheroes are everywhere. Um, I'm going to focus on The Truths We Hold. Okay. And I'm going to focus on something that happens before even page one. And I want to clear it up. Okay. For anyone who might have done this or is still doing this despite hearing it said correctly the first time, pronounce your name
1: Kamala. So just think of like the punctuation mark, a comma, and that at a law. And there you go.
0: <laughs> and so, so then what does Kamala mean then?
1: So it's a very traditional, classic Indian name, um, and it, it derives from Sanskrit, and it's, it means the lotus flower. And, so, and it's, it's very prevalent in a lot of Asian cultures, and the idea, the symbolism is that the lotus flower sits on water, um, but it never really gets wet. Um, the water beads off of it. And so the idea being that one can be in the midst of chaos or be in the midst of something happening and, and be there and should be there, and it doesn't necessarily need to penetrate you, but one should be there. And, and, and equally important, um, its roots are in the mud, meaning it is grounded, and, and, and one must always know where they come from and, and can still be this thing.
0: Yeah. So... Um. Now I need you to pronounce another name for me. Okay. That, for the life of me, I just I, I couldn't do it. Uh huh. And that is the name of your mother.
1: Shamala. So the Y is silent. Shamala. Shamala. Yeah.
0: What was her name? Shamala Go. Gopalan. Gopalan. Uh huh. Tell us about your mom. Um. Or as you call her, mother. mommy.
1: Mommy. We always called her mommy. Um, I'm not embarrassed to say she is mommy, and um, she is in many ways the reason I wrote the book. My sister, Maya, is here. Um, My mother's one of her best friends from college is here, Lenore Pomerantz, who I write about in the book. And my mother was a force of nature, a real force of nature. She is someone who all five feet of her, if you met her after you walked away, you would have thought she was seven feet tall. Um, My mother was a truth teller. She spoke the truth. She was probably the smartest, toughest, and most loving person I have ever known. She raised her daughters with a belief that um, we could do and be anything. Um, she taught us, you know, that, you, know, don't let people tell you who you are. you tell them who you are. Um, she was a scientist, a breast cancer researcher. She had two goals in her life: to end breast cancer and raise her two daughters. And she would take us to the lab with her. I'd go after school on the weekends. And, you know, being around scientists, one of the things that I, I realized now, early in my life, I learned was that one should see what can be unburdened by what has been, um, because that is what science is about. It's the pursuit of those things that will improve the condition of life, that will solve problems, that will make things better. And that's why I'm naturally attracted to also anything that is about innovation, understanding that innovation, we do it not because we're bored with things the way they've been, but because we should always be in pursuit of being more efficient, more effective, more relevant. And, um, and that's who she is and was.
0: Your father, uh-huh. uh Donald yes. Harris, uh-huh. also an immigrant, yes. born, born in Jamaica, yep. um, an economics professor at Stanford. Correct. And uh, let's keep in mind, she comes from some bra- brainiac parents. Your mom <laughs> got her Ph.D., the year you were born. Correct. Just put that out there. So now your dad mm-hmm. comes to the United States from, from Jamaica. Yeah.
1: My father was um, equally brilliant and is. Um, he was a national scholar in Jamaica. He earned his way um, and up and out and came to the United States and to Berkeley to study economics. And um, my parents met when they were active in the civil rights movement. And it's an interesting story, Jonathan, because, um, as you know, my mother graduated college when she was 19. And... I mean,
0: what did I tell you? She did,
1: and so... (laughs) And so she, you know, so she said to my grandfather, who was one of the freedom fighters in India for India's independence, and my mother was the eldest of four children. She was the oldest, and a girl, obviously. And she said to my grandparents, she wanted to study science and she wanted to go to what was considered to be one of the best schools, and that was UC Berkeley. And my grandparents looked at her and said, okay, we will put you on a plane and you can go to a place you've never been at 19 years old. Mm. This was in, I think, 1959. Wow. So this young, this girl, this young woman, got on a plane, encouraged by her parents to go and pursue her dream. Now, the backstory is also that it was fully expected she would get that degree and go back and have a good arranged marriage. <laughs> um, but, of course, my mother, having been raised and, and being who she was just naturally, she, when she got to Berkeley, was immediately attracted to the Civil Rights Movement.
0: Why do you think... And that's where she met my father. Okay, why do you think that was?
1: And, but I want to say, and yeah. she met my father and decided to have a love marriage. And a marriage based on love, which I believe is the ultimate act of optimism. Mm.
0: Right. So, to the the question that I interrupted your, <laughs> your statement with, why do you think she was so attracted to the civil rights movement?
1: She was raised, and you know, we growing up would go back to India like every other year, and um, and so I know the family from that that, that raised her because they helped raise us. And um, it was always about fighting for independence. It was about fighting for justice. It was about fighting to make sure that all people had a say in their future, in their government, an equal say. And that was, that was in her blood. And of course, that's what the civil rights movement was about and the free speech movement. And, um, and there are some funny stories I was just sharing with someone backstage, you know, so I I witness this as I write about in the book, you know, from my stroller's eye view. And um, there's a a funny family story about how, so my mother's marching with the the extended family I talk about, like Aunt Mary and Uncle Freddie in the book. And um, she would tell the story about how, so they're marching. And this is back when strollers didn't really have armrests and (laughs) seatbelts. So they're marching away and, you know, shouting and, and all of that. And then, I think it was my Uncle Freddie. you know, uh, looked down and, and looked in the stroller, which was empty. <laughs> and said, where's Kamala? <laughs> and apparently they left me like a block by and I'd fallen out the stroller. <laughs> there you go. And then my mother would tell a funny story about how like one day she and, and I was fussing and and you know and so I'm fussing and fussing. She it, it's much cuter when she would tell the story, but she'd say so. Then she would look down at me and Kamala, like, "What do you want? What do you want?" And I looked back up at her and I said, "Freedom!"
0: <laughs> I'm so glad you, you told go. that story on your own because I was going to ask you because I wanted to hear you say freedom.
1: Uh-huh. Oh yeah.
0: Uh, I. I I wanted to talk about your your father, economics professor, Stanford. They meet yeah. at Berkeley.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they have you and Maya. And you loved going to the park. Yes. And your mom would, correct me if I'm wrong, would put limits on you in terms of like how far you could go, whatever. And you, your dad would say to you, run,
1: yeah. run, Kamala, run. That's right. He would say, do not be afraid. Let her go. Let her go. Let her run. You run as fast as you can. You run as far as you want. And um, I believe that his whole purpose was to say, do not be afraid and be fearless and run and run and do not be afraid of falling. Do not let anybody stop you. Yeah.
0: Um, there's a question here from from the audience that I want to get in um, since we're talking about your parents, and particularly your mother. Uh, and since you didn't write your name down, if you hear the question, just go, ah! Um, <laughs> but I do think that this is, this is relevant. And the person asks, how has being half Indian American shaped your identity and political views?
1: Well, I was born who I am. Um, and I would say that the influence the Indian influence on my life is, is really a lot of it is based on what I, what I described in terms of the experiences that I had um, in India. And, you know, the, the family that, that I come from was very active, and I know that about, you know, India is one of the oldest, if not the oldest democracy in the world. And so the idea of debating and discussing what it means to be a democracy... You know, my grandfather, I was the eldest grandchild. Um, He convinced me I was his favorite, but I I now know he convinced each one of us that we were (laughs) his favorite. But being the eldest, um, my grandfather, by the time I was in my, like, six, seven, eight years old, um, he had retired. And we would go visit with them, and my grandfather had a routine every morning of taking a walk with his friends, his buddies, who were all also retired, all these old men, um, who would take their walk in the morning and, and discuss the glory days, and then talk about politics. And it was a great honor, and people in, in the family would talk about that, that he, would, he wouldn't let anybody go on that walk with him, but he'd let me go on the walk mm. with him. And I'd hold his hand as he'd walk with his buddies, talking about the need for an honest government, um, the need to, to wipe out corruption. Um, a, a representative government I, and I realized later how much that really how much I absorbed it and it influenced me. Um, and so that was a lot of the the influence um, in addition to just um, it being a culture as I have experienced it that is a very welcoming culture. It is a culture that is um, without judgment and um, is, is really I think it, it it's about really understanding um, the things that one must aspire to be. You know, One of the highest callings that you can have is to be a studied and learned person. Money is not a value that one aspires to, it's about knowledge. And um, I think that's, that's a very noble aspiration.
0: Um, so I'm gonna fast forward here again since we're in Washington, okay. home of your alma mater. How- H- you. Howard University. Oh, no. <laughs> you're, you, you're also A-K-A. Yes, I am. <laughs> Those
1: are my sores. and my sands are in the room as well.
0: <laughs> so why, you are a West Coast, West Coast girl, Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Why Howard?
1: Well, a lot of my family members went to Howard. I actually talk about it in the Superheroes Are Everywhere book. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) thank you. And so I had family members that went to Howard and told, and they would, you know, growing up, tell wonderful stories. But also, you know, I grew up at a young age wanting to be a lawyer. And, you know, the heroes among the many of the civil rights movement were the lawyers Thurgood Marshall, Charles Hamilton Houston, Constance Baker Motley. And, you know, they were the ones who took the passion from the streets and translated it into the courtrooms of our country and did the noble work of reminding folks of the thing that we know they must constantly be reminded of, which is that great point that we are all equal and should be treated that way. And so I, one of my heroes was Thurgood Marshall as another example of a great Howard graduate. And um, I was just in And so I was just, yeah, we can keep going. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, for all of those reasons, I want—I dreamt of going to Howard. I wanted to go to Howard, and I did go to Howard. And so, and thankfully, I did. You. And and GW is also a great school.
0: Well, more to, to the point of Howard, because you do write with such reverence yeah. for, for the university. And you write at Howard, you would come as you were and leave as the person you aspired to be. That's right. There were no false choices. That's right. We weren't just told we had the capacity to be great, we were challenged to live up to that potential. That's right.
1: So, at Howard, um, it's interesting, Jonathan, you remember, because we would run into each other around 2008, mm-hmm. during that election cycle, and I was an early supporter of, 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 of President Obama when he first ran, and do you remember that conversation that would happen about, is he black enough? Mm-hmm. You remember that? hmm And I was a surrogate, and so I remember having a few, doing a few interviews, and I would talk in response to that question about Howard University. And this is what I would say. One, you, when you ask that question, when one asks that question, are displaying your lack of exposure to who is a black person and what a black person can be and is, and so I would explain, but so I would explain. I would explain what it means to stand on the yard at Howard University. And I would say... Now, the, the yard is an area of, that is covered in grass in the middle of campus. And it's where we would go, at least when I was there on Friday afternoons, everyone would dress in their best. There was no such thing as dress down day. It was dress up day. And, and we would all promenade and, you know, and, and people would display their feathers and peacock, you know. <laughs> but this is what I'd say. I'd say, so if you stood in, on the yard... In any day of the week, journalist, whoever you may be who's asking this question, you could look over there and you would see young black students who are in the fine arts department, perhaps testing out their various dance moves or their musical instruments. You could look over there and you would see young African Americans in white coats, lab coats, coming from the school of med or pre-med. You get my point. People walking around with briefcases from the school of business. You You would see that the football um, star was also on the debate team. You would see that the homecoming queen was also an extraordinary science student. You would see that there are no limitations and there are no choices in terms of false choices that one need make. Um, and so you shouldn't be limited in your view and perspective of who is who and what is what. Um, but there's, when you have an experience of going to a school like Howard University... Especially during those very formative years of 18 through 24, where we're all, we've left home and we're at that point of really figuring out our identity. Who are we going to be in the world? What can we be in the world? How will the world perceive us? The beauty of being at Howard, and I hope that everyone has an experience similar is to learn and have it reinforced. You can be and do anything you want, and you do not need to conform to anyone's box about who you're supposed to be.
0: I so, wish I'd met you sooner. Um, I was in school having to put up with questions like that. But you know, at um, Howard, so
1: I pledged a sorority. <laughs> I pledged a sorority when I was at Howard. I, I was on the debate Which team. Which one? Alpha Kappa Alpha, already Incorporated. <laughs> I was on the debate team. I, you know, I was the chair of the Economic Society. Um, I went to my share of parties. <laughs> but you didn't have to make choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um- so you wanted to be a lawyer. When you were interning here, when you were at, at university, you would go over to the Supreme Court. You, yeah. you go on about the beauty of the Supreme Court building and how it's the most beautiful of the, of the high is. courts that you've visited around, around the world. But when you went to your family and said, I'm gonna be a lawyer, but I'm not just gonna be a lawyer, I'm going to be a prosecutor. Folks probably thought you lost your mind a prosecutor Yeah. yeah. given freedom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. What did you say to them when they, when they asked you Well, me You're right, that? and
1: I had to, I had to, with many of them, defend my decision like one would a thesis. <laughs> and what I said then is what I frankly maintain today. Uh, after a career as a law enforcement, in in law enforcement and as a prosecutor, I, I was I prosecuted everything, including homicides, when I was a courtroom lawyer. I was the elected D.A. for two terms. I was the attorney general for two terms, and that's a position that is also known as the top cop of the biggest state in the country. And what I will tell you is that what I said then and what I, I, I tried to live in my career as a prosecutor is the understanding that in that role, you have the power to be the voice of the most vulnerable among us and to give them dignity in the process and an equally important I would have the power to make decisions about, for example, doing what I did, which was creating one of the first, when I was DA and then Attorney General, one of the first meaningful initiatives of reentry around getting former offenders into jobs and counseling and, and, and support instead of just reincarcerating.
0: You.
1: you know, I, that, that, that I, you have the power. Prosecutors have so much power. And for those who, who would like to rightly, because there is so much work to be done, reform America's criminal justice system, don't lose sight of the power of the prosecutor and the power of a progressive prosecutor.
0: You, to know, you make even the say you wanted, to be, you wanted to be a progressive prosecutor.
1: Right, and to make the decisions, and also to not, again, accept the false choice. Um, look, I, I, have, I will never make an excuse for saying this, and, and or apology for saying this. One human being kills another human being. A woman is raped. A child is molested. There needs to be serious consequence and accountability. And and I'm going to always say that. And I'm going to say America has a problem with mass incarceration. We have been locking up black and brown men in particular. We have built-in biases that are implicit and explicit that need to be addressed. And I talk a lot about all of those issues in the book. Um, But even as Attorney General, I was able to create the first implicit bias and procedural justice initiative, which is about training police officers around implicit bias, the first one in the nation. And I had the power to do that because I was the attorney general. And so I would encourage folks that when you think about um, what is available to you in terms of reaching your goal, don't accept anyone's limitations about how you can do that. You can be in the room at the table where the decisions are being made, or you can be outside and be equally effective, but don't, don't exclude yourself from the opportunity to be in the room where the decisions are being made.
0: Um, You write in the book, um, and for those of you who have seen me do this before, unfortunately, I did not put the page number, so I can't tell you. Um, But you, you write, you can't want the police to stop crime in your neighborhood and also want them to stop... You can want the police to stop crime in your neighborhood and also want them to stop using excessive force. That's right. You can want them to hunt down a killer on your streets and also want them to stop using racial profiling. That's right. You can believe in the need for consequence and accountability, especially for serious criminals, and also oppose unjust incarceration. And that gets to one of your favorite mantras, which is, you know, no false choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you're arguing here, that you can be all of these things and not be anti police, as the shorthand is. Mm-hmm. But what do you say to those who hear that and read that and still say, like, well, you're anti police?
1: Well, it's just not true.
0: <laughs> I mean, I had to have.
1: That's why I say we got to talk truth. <laughs> it's just not true. It's not true. I, it's not true, period.
0: So you, as you just, you mentioned, you were the elected district attorney, Mm -hmm. San Francisco, Mm -hmm. twice. Yeah. Um, And on this page number I did put down, page 37, uh, you write, was this really the time for me to run? I had no way of knowing, but more and more I was coming to feel that wait and see wasn't an option. And then you quote James Baldwin. There's never a time in the future in which we will work out our, our salvation. The challenge is in the moment the time is always now. There were people in San Francisco who said, "Well, who are you to run for district attorney?" Mm-hmm. Why did you feel it was um, maybe necessary for you to jump in there and run for attorney? I'm sorry, for uh, district attorney of San Francisco.
1: So I, um, in 2003, decided to run for district attorney of San Francisco and challenge an incumbent who comes from an old political family in San Francisco. He had been in office for two terms. Um, His nickname is K.O., because he was known as being a boxer who knocked people out. And when I um, decided to run, because I thought that I could do the job better, people said to me, well, you know, nobody like you has ever done this before. They're not going to be ready for that. Or, oh, you're too young. Why don't you wait some time? Or, oh, it's not your turn. People would say, oh, it's going to be so difficult, as though we run away from hard work. And, um, and I didn't listen. Um, and I was all excited, and then I was sitting in a room waiting for my first poll numbers, and they got handed to me, and I started out at a very healthy six points in the polls, <laughs> which, for those who don't know, is six out of 100. <laughs> I, I swear to you, I said to myself and my team, if we can get to 12, I know we can win.
0: Three, <laughs> I, 12. Know, I,
1: I Yes, because I knew if we doubled the number, we could win. I just knew it, and we did. And, Out of 100? But, but, you know, <laughs> 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 optimism right. springs from many places. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think key in that election, and something that I, I grew up learning through the family in the community from which I was raised, but also in that process, I believe the strongest politics are coalition politics. And and that is at its heart about understanding that the vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. And, again, rejecting the idea that that we live in silos and that we don't share values and we don't share concerns. And when we wake up in the middle of the night, we don't share the same kinds of thoughts about what we need or what our family needs. No, the vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. And so we built up that campaign. In that spirit. And so, for anyone who knows San Francisco or the Bay Area, you know, there were equal number of people from Chinatown, it's from the Castro, it's from Bayview, Hunters Point. All of these very different um, demographics, a pollster would tell you, who came together in that office in Bayview, Hunters Point, where everybody said nobody would go because it's a community in San Francisco that has an annual family income of about $15,000, household income. People said, nobody will go there. I said, that's why I'm putting my office there, because people need to come here. And they came from all over and would sit at this long table, stuffing the envelopes at the direction of my mother.
0: <laughs> she was your biggest defender, but also your biggest campaign, campaign worker.
1: Oh, she was serious. Yeah, <laughs> she was serious. She, and then, you know, speaking of her, and I write this in the book, um, even after she got sick, and she, um, she had cancer herself. Um, we were at the hospital, and, and as it turns out, these were some of her final days, which I didn't realize at that time, um, didn't want to realize. But she was, um, I was sitting next to her, and she was on the hospital bed, and she, had, she was turned that way. And um, it was the AG's race, and I had just decided to run and filed. And she said, well, how, how's, the, how's the race going? And I said, well, Mommy... They said they're going to kick my ass. (laughs) And my mother took all of her energy. She turned her body over, looked at me, and smiled.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you... I I was saving that one. Yeah. Because Uh I'm so glad, because I wanted to hear you say that. Uh Um, Uh But you you also write in the book, she rolled over, looked at me, and just unveiled the biggest smile. She knew who she had raised... Man. She knew her fighting spirit was alive and well inside me.
1: Yeah.
0: So, that takes us to the California Attorney General's race,
1: uh-huh.
0: where you said you twice elected, and even in that race, you write, um, "One longtime political strategist announced to an audience at UC Irvine that there was only no way I could win." Because I was, quote, a woman running for attorney general, a woman who is a minority, a woman who is a minority, who is anti-death penalty, who is D.A. of wacky San Francisco. <laughs> Old stereotypes die hard. I was convinced that I was convinced that my perspective and experience made me the strongest candidate in the race. But I didn't know if the voters would agree. But they did. It took a few weeks. It to took find out.
1: 21 days. So, OK, here's what happened. What happened was... What happened (laughs)
0: was...
1: (laughs) So, election night. Election night, as I write about all of my election nights in the book. um, Election night, we have a tradition of family and friends small dinner. And after the polls close, and then go to where all of the friends and the supporters are for the election night, hopefully party. And so I went... To the, to the place where we were, which is Delancey Street, which is a place that I've gone to almost every election night. It's a wonderful um, uh, residential treatment facility for former offenders and getting them training jobs. So I urge you to look it up if you're at all interested in, in successful recidivism um, prevention programs. In any event, got there. And my consultant said, it's going to be a long night. And um, and, you know, but you probably should just get out there because the TVs are out there. They're on the risers. It was about 10 o'clock. He said, you should probably get out there and say something, um, but it's going to be a long night. And I said, all right. So I was in a little ante room and everybody was in the big room. And so I walk out into the big room and all of the supporters, lots and lots of people are there. And I'm walking through the crowd to get to the stage and people are all teared up. And I was like, oh, this was an incredible election, you know, against odds. Everybody was fighting. We we're in it. Everybody's feeling really emotional. I was very touched. And I walked up to the stage, and I didn't have any notes. And I just I said, you know, it's going to be a long night, and, but this is what we stood for and about Smart on crime, And I could feel the mood in the room kind of shifting. And then I was done speaking, and somebody who had been with me for a long time, she came up to the stage. And I was standing on the stage, and she came up, and she said, get back in the room. And, you know, when you've been through battle with folks and then somebody says to you, do something, you don't ask why. So I said, okay. So I got I took the steps down. And then there was this one reporter. I'll never forget her. I see her sometimes in San Francisco. (laughs) And she, she was she had the cameraman there and she had this mic in my face as I was walking into the back room. She's like, well, what happened? What do you think happened? I said, we ran a great race. This is what we are about. This is what we stand for. And she and I are not connecting. And I get into the back room and then I realize that the San Francisco Chronicle had declared my defeat. (laughs) So I was the only one in the room who thought we were still in the (laughs) game. They had been crying because they thought we lost. (laughs) And then we had 20.
0: (laughs) Which it didn't.
1: But it all worked out. And so 21 later you know the the, the the count was done and we were victorious yeah, you gotta read. <laughs>
0: and you got to read and you got to read in the book how she finds out it's very it's very intense it was incredibly how fi- intense how, how the you whole how process. you found out okay so at what point because now i've lost lost my, my timeline here at what point were you D.A. or were you already A.G. when D.H., I'm sorry, D.E. entered the the, the picture? I was... Douglas M.
1: Yes, my husband. Um, <laughs> so um, I was A.G. and had recently been elected. And um, my best friend, part of what I talk about in the book, and I would urge you, I know we have a lot of college students here, too, Hold on to your friends. None of us achieve the success we have right now without the friendships that we have along the way. And, 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 and I just have to stress that because there's so much about the book that is about policy and about my personal stories. But one of the keys, and I actually in the children's book talk about that, is just friends. Um, in addition to family, of course, because that's an, a main part of the book. But anyway, so my best friend... Is blown up my phone. I'm in a meeting after meeting after meeting. And her children are my godchildren. And so I started to get worried about why she kept calling. And I then called her back. And I said, what's going on? Are the kids okay? And she said, you're going on a date.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's some nerve.
1: Oh, she is it so bossy. Set you up on a blind date. No, your uh, best friends can be bossy. She's bossy. She said, you're going on a date. I said, oh, and um, you just have to go. Just tell me you're going to go. Just, you know, don't Google him. Don't look him. Don't overthink it. <laughs> right? <laughs> don't overthink it. Just trust me. Go on. And, so that, and so I met my husband on a blind date. Um, <laughs> and there's more to the story. you got to read the
0: book. Yeah, there's more to the story. You've got to read the book. It's, it's, it's super sweet. And, and guys... Uh, all guys, especially straight guys, pay attention to the Mhoff model yeah, pay attention.:
1: yeah, it really uh, is smart
0: i can't have you sit here and not talk to you about issues yes, please and so we 'll start from when you were you were attorney general, mm-hmm. and that was right in the middle of the financial implosion. foreclosures were happening, right. and you write a lot about the fact that you were in a big fight, yeah. With, with the banks, they were trying to settle for peanuts. Yep. And you demanded that they do more. And it got to the point where you got into, as one questioner asked, and they wanted, they wanted to know this, um, you got into a, kind of a shouting match Yes, with um, Jamie Dimon. I did. The... Uh, head of J.P. Morgan Chase. And as the questioner asked, what was it like to have a shouting match with Jamie Dimon? (laughs) And, um... Shoot, I didn't write down the page number, but you have this thing where you tell your staff get them on the phone and they get them on the phone... Which is what precipitated the discussion. (laughs) But then you have in parenthesis you took your earrings off... (laughs) They're already (laughs) applauding at taking the earrings off. But what she writes in the book was, I took my earrings off because I'm a girl from Oakland. (laughs) Why were you so adamant? Even when your staff was saying, you can't call him, why were you so adamant about getting him on the phone? So, um,
1: when I, shortly after I took office as attorney general, which um, it, it was the... Ending of an investigation that found that the five big banks of the United States had engaged in robo signing foreclosures. So essentially, what they had been doing was rubber stamping foreclosure on homes, on families' homes, without doing the due diligence to really determine whether the family really should have lost their home. Thousands upon thousands of people in our country lost their homes to foreclosure horrible stories. Um, I took my team on the road with me um, to to go and meet with California families. California had often seven of the top ten cities in the United States hardest hit by the foreclosure crisis. And all this was happening, the the investigation had just been completed right after I took the oath to be Attorney General. And because California had been so hard hit, I took a role of leadership in the negotiations because we had so much at stake. The banks early on had offered California 2 to $4 billion, which sounds like a lot of money. But I was asking my team, well, as compared to what? And that's when I learned we didn't really have the numbers. And so we hired, I said, you know, we've got to hire economists. We have to figure out how, I wanted to know, how underwater are the families in California, county by county? I want metrics so I can have a number to compare against this 2 to $4 billion. Mm-hmm. And it clearly, there were crumbs on the table, as I learned. And so, I would, but I would go through the state, I took my staff and my team with me, because I said, when we are sitting across, and when you're sitting across the table from those lawyers for the banks, I want you to be really clear in your mind about who you represent. So we are going to go and travel up and down the state, and we're going to meet with homeowners, and we're going to hear their stories. And the stories were awful, Jonathan. And... As far as I'm concerned, it, it, it proceeded in a way that became clear to me that the lawyers were just kind of playing around with the details that didn't matter to the homeowners. Mm-hmm. And it also became clear to me that there was a lack of understanding about who these families were. You know, at one point they were saying things like, you know, oh, well, the, they're just, you know, these, they're trying to commit fraud. These homeowners were trying to commit fraud. And I would look at them and I'd say, have you ever known somebody who was proud of their lawn? Because that's who these families are. This is their one piece. This is the one thing that represents all of their hard work. This is the thing that represents their future. This is the thing that represents how they will pay for their children's college education. This is the thing that is a source of pride. This is not just about a real estate deal or a financial transaction. This is about everything that we talk about in terms of American dream. Anyway, it just, it got to a ridiculous point, and I just got fed up, frankly, and so I was in my office, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and they said, well, the banks, they're just not doing what what we think they should do. And it was getting to the end of a very long process. And I was just done. And I just, I, I you know, we had an intercom system when I was growing up um, that involves shouting from one room to another. <laughs> and um, that intercom system works really well still. And so I basically shouted to my assistant, Courtney, and I said, Courtney, get Jamie Diamond on the phone for me. I shouted. And the lawyers were sitting in my office looking at me like, you can't call him. He is represented by a lawyer. You can't do this. And I was like, yes, I can. And the next thing you know, he got on the phone. And so she came in and said, Jamie Dimon's on the phone. And I said, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this, in dealing, with, the, in, in dealing in, with this crisis and with these bangs, um, there was so much going on. But you come back to what I sort of note broadly about your book, Mother Wisdom. Yeah. Um, And you're dealing with the foreclosure crisis and negotiating banks. You know, I know, you said about your mother, I know she would have told me to hold fast to conviction. Yeah, To listen to my gut. Tough decisions are tough precisely because the outcome isn't clear. That's right. But your gut will tell you if you're on the right track and you'll know what decision to make. Mm-hmm. Now, when I listen to my gut these days, it takes on a whole different meaning because... The, la-
1: the twist in the interview. Because <laughs> the
0: last time I heard this, someone said, I'm doing deals and I'm not being accommodated by the Fed. They're making a, a mistake because I have a gut and my gut tells me more sometimes than anybody else's brain can ever tell me. <laughs> President Trump, November 27th, 2018. What's the difference between your gut and his gut?
1: I would actually say that that assumes facts, not evidence that he has a gut. <laughs> I think there is there is a thing about um, there is a thing about leadership Um which is that you have to have the courage to do things that are in the best interest of the people you lead, even if it's not in your personal best interest. And you can't be gutless when it comes to making those kinds of decisions. You have to put the needs of the people before your personal needs. And um, so when I think about The question you ask, it is about that. It is about, it is also, and I hope this comes across because it is certainly something that is important to me in the book, about the importance of of, of appreciating the nobility of public service. Um, You know, you, you hold these positions in the public trust, and that makes you a trustee. You are responsible for other people's stuff. And with that comes a great amount of responsibility and power. But the power is supposed to be used in a responsible way on behalf of others and in their best interest, which requires a number of things, including some level of curiosity about how people are doing.
0: And when it comes to the immigration debate, you go on to write, there are few things more cruel more inhumane, more fundamentally evil than ripping a child from her parents' arms. We should all know this to be true on a gut level. Yes. You, you also write in the book about your conversations with then-Secretary of Homeland Security John Kelly, who mm-hmm. said to you when you called... Um, it was after what, the Muslim ban. After the Muslim ban. Why are you calling me at home? Correct. He said that to you? Yes, he did. Were your earrings off then, too? <laughs>
1: You know, um, (laughs) it's a whole situation what's going on around here. And, you know, it's... (laughs) And it's actually the process of writing the book was actually challenging in that way, because even to your point, there's been so much happening in the last two years, right toward the end where I was like the deadline, I had to get the book to the publishers, and then the Kavanaugh hearing happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, but literally, and, and part of it, I hope everyone has the time to really read through and think about there's so much that's been happening so rapidly, we cannot forget what has happened. We cannot forget what has happened and how critical. Each of these things have been, and how important and how significant they have been in terms of, in most of these cases, the harm they have caused. Mm -hmm. We cannot forget, and we cannot be seduced into reacting to, okay, now I'm going to throw a thing over there so y'all can pay attention to that and that shiny thing instead of paying attention to this thing that just happened. We cannot forget... What has been happening over the course of these last couple of years, and we must hold on to the fact and the knowledge in our hearts, in our guts, we are better than this. So we're being tested, we're being tested, and we have to. In these moments, in the introduction, you know, the the thing about joyful warrior. Yeah, that's what I, I came up with that term because I said, you know, it was after 2017. I said. I'm tired of being mad all the time, (laughs) you know, and being kind of upset. And I said, you know, we got to find time to sing and dance and laugh and have a little fun. And, you know, any fight, any fight, any good fight is born out of optimism. It really is. The fight that my parents were engaged in, that was born out of optimism. It was born out of optimism that you and I would be sitting on this stage having this conversation. Mm -hmm optimism. And, and, and so in these moments, let's remember that we are fighting for something, and we must remain optimistic, and we cannot tire. And let's be joyful in that process.
0: Um, you write, when you break through a glass ceiling, you're going to get cut, and it's going to hurt. It is not without pain. Right. Another thing you uh, like to say is um, Political capital doesn't gain interest. Right. You have to spend it. Yes. Um, that you write, the beginning of our downfall comes when we stop aspiring mm-hmm. for all of our differences, for all the battles, for all the fights. We are still one American family, and we should act like it. We have so much more in common than separates us. We need to paint a picture of the future in which everyone sees themselves and everyone is seen. A vibrant portrait of a vibrant United States where everyone is treated with equal dignity, and each of us has the opportunities to make the most of our own lives. That is the vision worth fighting for, born out of love of country. You write later a patriot is not someone who condones the conduct of our country, whatever it does. It is someone who fights every day for the ideals of the country, whatever it takes. And now, Senator Harris, I would like for you to read this that's underlined.
1: This yep, from started, here to yep. there?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Let's not throw up our hands when it's time to roll up our sleeves. Not now, not tomorrow, not ever. Years from now, our children and our grandchildren will look at us, each of us, and they will lock their eyes with ours. And they will ask us a question. And that question will be, where were you at that inflection moment? And what I know all of us will respond is we will say we were all here together, and we will tell them what we did at this moment. We will tell them the action we took. We won't simply tell them how we felt. We will tell them what we did, and we will be proud to do that.
0: And so my final question to you, Senator Harris, when your time comes, when your godchildren and grandchildren (laughs) ask you, what did you do? Will your response be, I ran for president. <laughs> you just said maybe you want to it's only just us here you got a timetable serious question do you have a timetable um for making a decision
1: soon Soon can we talk about the children's book
0: oh sure (laughs) (laughs) nice dodge
1: mama didn't raise no fool (laughs) (laughs) i just want to talk about the children's book for a moment because it's really no seriously yeah. Because I wanted to write, it, the, the title is Superheroes Everywhere, and um, I, you know, I grew up reading comic books, I love comic books, I, I'm a nerd, I pretend not to be. Um, but, and I, and, and you know, and there are so many now movies, superheroes, and I wanted to make the point to all of us, because um, truly this applies to adults as well, that, you know, you don't have to look at a CGI screen to see a superhero right? And for children in particular, I wanted to make the point that you're surrounded by superheroes, and if you look closely enough, you can see that they're wearing a cape. And it may be your parent, and I talk about my mother and my father. It may be your grandparent, and I talk about them. I talk about teachers are superheroes. My, my first grade teacher, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Frances Wilson, attended my law school graduation. Um, I talk about best friends are heroes. And um, I just think it's really important that as we raise our children, the children of us as a community, that we remind them of how special they are and that they are surrounded by superheroes. And then the last page of the book, actually, and I'm just going to point it to all of you, is then, and then it's like, heroes are you. And it's for them to look and see a picture of themselves. Um, In any event.
0: Okay. um, Okay, I lied. One last question. (laughs) Speaking of heroes. Yeah. um, You write about the time when you won your DA race, which is 15 years ago.
1: I know, it's a long time ago.
0: man came up with his two daughters... And he said to you, I brought them here today so they could see what someone who looked like them could grow up to do. Mm-hmm. I have been uh, with you in public places where people literally like, lose their minds when they, <laughs> when they see you. They're so thrilled to see you. Um, as you can tell from the audience, a lot of people want you to Thank do you. something bigger. <laughs> Just on a personal level, how does it make you feel? What does it do to you mm-hmm. to know that there are millions of people across this country who are waiting for you to say two words?
1: Um. <laughs> Listen, I think that um, there is... Um, no question in my mind that each of us, when we take on a role of leadership, we have great responsibilities, and that's how I think about it. When I see, for example, as you described, a parent coming up with their children, and by the way, um, it's, you know, I've also seen a father come up with his sons and say, that's, because it's also about saying to young boys, it's saying to anybody, you don't have to be burdened by what has been, you can be whatever you want to be. Um, and, but I, I, I think about it um, in terms of the responsibility and it's, it's a very important responsibility that I take very seriously to, to try as, as best as I can to be a voice for people whose voices should be heard and, and seen and so um, that's how I think about it
0: Senator Kamala Harris of the great state of California thank you very much Listening to Cape Up? Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of the Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.